Okay, we are in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1. And we're going to do verse 4. We're, we're consistent. We do one verse a Sunday. I think we're getting into ones that are a little less dense. The first three verses were, had each one had four or five important concepts in them. So that's why they, it took us a while. Uh, now we're going to talk about Jesus being greater than the angels. Why do you think that the author of Hebrews would have so many verses to prove that Jesus is better than the angels? <laughs> That's true. Because it's important. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, angels are created beings and Jesus is eternal God. And it's very important to have a proper doctrine of Christ to know the difference. Yes. And also, at the end of all these verses, he sums it up. So therefore, we ought to take greater heed of this new covenant, because if the one voted to the angels was binding, then how much more should we take heed of this one, which is delivered to God himself? Excellent, Carl. Absolutely fantastic. You're, that, that's a very good uh, analysis of, of this section of Hebrews. Because the Jews believed that the law was delivered through angels. And they talked about that a lot. They believed that angels came down on Mount Sinai and gave the law. And so they had an idea that the first covenant was mediated by angels. It isn't quite so clear there's angels in the Old Testament, but the Jewish understanding of it was bigger than what all was said in the Old Testament, but they really believed that the law was given by angels. The New Testament time when Jesus came, the angelology was that the concept of angels was very, very well developed. Yes, he that there's side of things yeah. that every sect of Judaism has a very well developed understanding of angels right. to address the angels in a way that was Christ hired and that relegates that whole discussion. Yeah, that's true. Right. And there were numerous accounts in the Old Testament where people bowed down to angels and then the angel would address the person and say, no, Don't do that, no, right. Don't bow down. But then you see that today too in, in, in our, our time where people have elevated angels into a, uh, uh, almost a godly uh, Yeah, angels are, are sort of a fad. And, it, and there's a lot of mythology about it. it for one thing, if people have a picture of an angel, what do they have? So, like a little girl with wings? Well, did you know that there's not a single female angel in the Bible? As far as the, I mean, names? They're all male names? Okay. Also, there could be the fact there are good and bad angels. If Christ is above and below, he's in charge of them. He's in charge of both kinds. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have a question concerning Pastor uh, Hobbes. Uh, in some cases, there was more than an angel there. Yeah. And they were pre-incarnate, uh, what you'd call a theophany or a visitation of God yeah. in a form that could be seen. And some of them were, <laughs> were uh, giving law, not law. Well, they spoke for God authoritatively to man in some cases. 
Right. It would not be referring to Christ. And I think what Keith said is important to understand. If you study the intertestamental literature, it's not biblical. But there's these apocryphal books and pseudepigrapha that were Jewish literature written between Malachi and Matthew. There is a lot of material about angels. And the angels took on a bigger and bigger role. So popular Judaism in the first century had a bigger role for angels than even what you find in the Bible in the Old Testament. So... Um, that's part of the reason Hebrews addresses the issue of angels, because it was a really big deal to first century Jews. Angels. And they had lots of angel names in that literature, by the way, more than what's in the Bible. So, we uh, commence with our discussion, Christ better than the angels. Hebrews 1.4 Having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So here, after these first three marvelous verses about the glory and nature of Christ, he is now declared to be much better than the angels. And uh, the discussion of a more excellent name, what would be the reason for bringing up the concept of his name. What's his name have to do with anything? His nature. Right, his nature. The name, uh, names are very important in the Bible, and in one's name was uh, descriptive of his character and his person. So by inheriting a more excellent name, it means who he is, his nature, and his person. Uh, let's look up some cross-references, and then I have a couple of citations from commentaries I wanted to share with you. Where should we start? Somewhere new. Let's go with uh, Jim Bukowski. Ephesians 1, 20-21, Jim. And Diane, 1 Peter 3:22, Jack Trump. Philippians 2, 9-11. through 11. If you have one Bible, you can... Share that that reference it. Ephesians one twenty and twenty one, one Peter three twenty two, Philippians two nine through eleven, and then Keith, if you could look up Revelation five eleven and twelve. All right, Jim. Ephesians one twenty and twenty one. He brought about in Christ, and he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So he's above every name that is named. Yes. Context there that the name actually conveys authority. So it's not just the character, but it's actually the authority that was. The authority is definitely an issue in Ephesians because the people tended to fear these powers the hostile powers and the good ones. A lot of popular angel teaching in the first century, both amongst the Jews and the pagans, they shared these these things. In the ancient inscriptions that they find, there were pagan sources that had Jewish angel names. And they borrowed these from the Jews because they thought maybe the Jewish angels would help them uh, stay free from the hostile powers. 
there was a lot of uh, superstition about the forces out there that were going to negatively influence your fate. And so they would get these things to wear around your neck that would have the names of angels on the amulets that would protect you. And if somebody came along and said, well, I heard that this, this particular angel and have another name is really good for, this, for such and so, they'd add it to it. It's sort of like, you know, in Catholicism, they have St. Christopher does this, and St. So-and-so does that. and So you kind of add to the names if you find out somebody might work, something might work. So there's a lot of superstition. And that was true in Ephesus. And so in Ephesians, when Paul is declaring that Christ is above every power, whether it's a good one or a bad one, he's above all of them. And that if you're in Christ, you also are. In other words, in him, you are free from these hostile powers. You don't need superstition. You don't need to try to get angels to help you. You just are uh, in Christ, seated above these things. And that's just the whole thing is asserting the sovereignty of Christ. And if he's sovereign above everybody, including the angels, then you just have to obey Christ and the angels will take care of themselves. Yeah. yeah, he'll take care. The angels will take care of us, too. But we don't have to uh, consciously interact with them for that to happen. In fact, we can't. It shouldn't. Uh, there are those... Have you ever heard the teaching that you have to take authority over your angels and tell them to go do things for you? I have... I've heard that. Kenneth Copeland teaches that. I have a tape in which he teaches that. And, and, he, and so you basically command the angels to go and get money for you? That's nice. <laughs> yeah, that helps spread the pub, yeah. I don't know, but the point is, we, the angels, they use this passage in Hebrews that we'll be reading eventually to prove that, but there's nothing in Hebrews that says that the angels aren't going to look after us unless we tell them to. That's yeah, silly, but that's not what they say, yes. Though it says that Christ is in charge of everything, everything. So whatever happens to us, we'll be filled into his hands, we'll be for our best. Great. But on the surface of things, these angels may even be doing things for our best, which don't look like our best to us. That's true. <laughs> the angels are doing what we need, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's in Matthew 7. There's people actually doing, casting out demons and doing miracles in his name. And the whole thing is deception. And Jesus gives the antidote to that. The one building on the rock is the one that hears these teachings of mine and does them. And so the way you know that you're pleasing Christ is by studying the Bible and doing what he says. The fact that some power is there or something works doesn't prove that Christ approves of it. Okay, well, 1 Peter 3.22, Diane. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him? Well, angels and... Who all were subjected to him? Angels, authorities, and powers were subjected to Christ at his ascension. That includes all of them, good, bad, or indifferent. All right. Philippians 
2, 9-11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is the that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in the glory of God the Father. Alright, that's pretty inclusive, isn't it? <laughs> so he has a better name than everybody. In the meaning, his character, his person. And then Revelation 5:11 and 12 key. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and glory, power and riches and wisdom and might, and honor and glory and blessing. Yeah. <laughs> And so one of the roles of angels is to worship Christ. And they're, and they're ascribing everything to Him. Why do you think people, whenever superstition persists or arises, people get fascinated with angels? And they call on angels and what have you. What's that? Yeah, they're looking at forces that are a little closer to us that could be perhaps manipulated to, to do some good. There's been TV shows about it. There's uh, all kinds of uh, people buy angels to hang them in their windows. And, Which is actually a deception of Satan. I mean, that's almost a plan of his is to derail people off the track of getting to know Christ. Yeah. Getting them to put their dependence on something other than him. Yeah. In the, you know, in theology, there's these two terms, imminence and transcendence. I think I've explained those before. Imminence meaning close. Transcendence meaning above and beyond. The Bible declares that God is both imminent and transcendent. That he is high and holy, lifted up and that no man can see it and have seen, but that he also, in Christ, makes it possible for us to draw near. But because of God's awesomeness and transcendence, popular religious piety tends toward the imminent. And so if you got these angels that are, maybe can do some things for you, they don't seem like, they don't seem scary. But the awesome God is the judge of the universe, so we'll just leave him in heaven and we'll deal with these forces here. And that's what your nature religions do, and I think that's the natural tendency, aside from the gospel, is to just look for manipulating the forces around here. Yes, I know. When Mary Carla was little, she had that experience, and she told Kathy that there was a man playing with her and protecting her, and Kathy said there wasn't any anything. <laughs> Angels? Could be. We do know that they're there, but who knows? As long as we call upon the name of God it, it, through the gospel, and he's in charge of them, that's fine. Then we have a correct understanding. If we think that we can manipulate these beings to do our bidding, we're missing uh, the point. Right? Let me read uh, something from Lenski. It's a commentary that I, a series that I have on the New Testament. It talks about the tenses in the Greek. The perfect tense has inherited, explains the heiress, got to be. In the incarnation, the human nature of Jesus 
inherited the name Sub, Luke 1.32, which belonged to his person from all eternity, which in reference to his human nature was given to him already in the Old Testament. The perfect tense implies that what he inherited remains his ever since. But as we go through this, there's, there's a, a real difficulty explaining this idea of the Son who becomes, in some senses, but the other, but ultimately has always been, because he's not created. So how is the not created eternal God, the Son, inheriting a name, becoming the author of our salvation? Thou art my Son today, I've begotten thee. How can you use those terms, which seem to be bound to time, uh, about someone who is never changing, from everlasting to everlasting? And I've got to tell you that as we study this, it comes up in Hebrews, it's going to go beyond what we can comprehend. I've been studying it since I was in Bible college, and I can't claim to have figured it out. But I'll do the best I can. It's a legitimate question. If you're, if you're witnessing, say a Jehovah Witness, and they'd say, well, Jesus is a created being, and you say, no, no, he's God from forever and ever, and they say, well, what's this verse 5 here? Today, I've begotten you. When, when, when did that happen? That sounds like a point in time. And so, it's not just some question that theologians take up because they don't have anything better to do and there wasn't a Vikings game. I mean, it comes that rises right from the text itself. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So, having become better, see, even, even in this even in this verse, you have a question about this tense. Having become better than the angels. Well, if he's the eternal God and he changes not, how does he become anything? Uh, has anybody got an answer to that? Or am I supposed to have that answer? <laughs> Here's the question. Having become, Hebrews 1.4, and the, it's the aorist participle in the Greek. Having become as much better than the angels, if he is eternally better than the angels in his essential nature as God the Son, how is it that he becomes that? Could you infer to say that when they were created, that he was created at a lesser level, so therefore he was greater? Well, yeah, he definitely was. Was and is and always was. But then the having become is the issue that we have a hard time answering and usually it, it has to do with the exaltation yes can it be just from our perspective or our ability to perceive uh, and also doesn't the Lord describe humans as being better than angels also now but we it says it says here yeah that we will be that we will judge angels and that humans have a more important role ultimately in all eternity but now not so that's the not yet thing. Well, the explanation that always comes back to, yes, no. You can always have a concept or an idea from our standpoint. But to you the name, nobody knows what it is. Okay. That may not answer, I guess. Okay, but the name is given as a description, and that, the name's given in history. The concept idea has always been there. Right. But the name is given to describe it. And there is certain development in the work of Christ. Alright? God, see, God in his essential nature is changeless. 
right? He doesn't become. There's a liberal sense they call process theology. Yeah, they believe that God learns and grows and changes as he comes along. Uh, the, uh, but the Bible says the guy of the Lord changed up. But Christ in his incarnation, when he takes on human nature, well, you do see things becoming. For instance, he becomes the author of our salvation in history. Though he was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, the actual event happens in history. The ascension happens in history. The virgin birth happens in history. And so all these things happen and become, even though from all eternity his nature doesn't change. But, it, but so there's somewhat of a mystery here. So these becoming words that are applied to Christ have to do with his human nature. Well, that's, that's an interesting thing that you're saying because when you call him Christ, that's not only a God person because Christ or anointed one it speaks of his humanity. His son of David. So in the Bible when it speaks of Jesus or it speaks of Messiah it, it has to be talking as well about his humanity. Right. So are you saying that it yeah, the, the verse that Jack read. Melding um, is putting the discussion in terms of someone, a person that we are talking about. The Christ in his humanity does change. In other words, from a little baby born in Bethlehem to the man who does the miracles to the one who dies on the cross, there's change. But in his deity as God, he changes not. So the way this is answered then is all of these phrases that talk about being begotten, becoming, what have you, are applied to Christ's humanity. And therefore they may have something to do with the work of Christ, whether it's at the ascension, I think in some cases, yes. Even though it's the Son came to earth, as a child, when you say the come, Because of his 
uh, death, burial, and ascension, and being seated at the right hand. So the it's called the session of Christ, by the way, theology. That Christ is seated in glory and majesty as the high priest. And so I think that relative to his human nature, the idea is that once he is ascended into heaven, now he is displaying his glory and his name and his character much better than the angels. And I don't think it's implying that at some point he wasn't ultimately better than the angels. Yeah, right. But I think he's talking about the ascension here, but we'll talk about that as we go along. Because all, all along here is talking about the incarnation and the work of Christ. Because let's read some more verses. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, and they have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Verse 6. And again, he brings the firstborn into the world. He says, Let the angels worship him. And so, this uh, inheriting a more excellent name, being begotten, being the son, uh, in, in a sense, of the Messiah, and then bringing the firstborn in the world, by the way, which is a, not as clear as it sounds in English, but the, there's a d- discussion about what that it refers to. But all those things have to do with the incarnation in some sense. Christ taking on the human nature. All of these things have to do with that. So I think that that's what the author of Hebrews has in mind, that as Messiah, as the Son of God who came on the face of the earth and was crucified, buried, and raised on the third day and bodily ascended into heaven and raised from heaven at the right hand of the Father, as that, he is much better than the angels. That does not imply that at some point he wasn't in my opinion, because the angels worshipped him in, uh, when he was just born in Bethlehem, right? Weren't there angels worshipping and praising God when Messiah was born? So, and they are in heaven because Keith read about that. Okay, enough um, on that verse. We're going to do more than one today. We're making, we're going. We're going to verse 5. For to which of the, the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Now, before we discuss this in any more detail, I would like to tell you up front that what's really interesting in these choice of verses is that these two verses were considered messianic by the Jews, or right, the rabbis, before even the time of Christ. If you want to read a fantastic book, read uh, Alfred Edersheim's book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. It's a fantastic book. We have it in our library. It's two volumes in the library. I have it both in hardback, single volume, and on CD. The CD one's really cool. In Edersheim's book, Edersheim was a Jewish scholar who was Messianic, believed in Messiah. He wrote in the late 19th century. He has in there citations. He has a list of verses that were considered messianic by the Jewish rabbis. It's really interesting in Jewish evangelism to have that list. And he goes through verse after verse and then quotes from the Targum and Midrash or whatever they had. He he quotes, "This, this rabbi said this, this rabbi said this, this rabbi said that. 
And so you find out what verses they consider to be messianic. Yes. The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim. And the, you know what's delightful about that book? It's, it's so readable. It's, it's really great prose. It, it, even a lot of these scholarly books, you know, I give you a heading. Edersheim is just a delight to read. His descriptions of the, of the first century feasts of the Jews and what things were like on the Feast of Tabernacles and, and describing Jesus in his glories and what he did and what he said. It's just absolutely a classic. Highly recommend it. But he does have in an index a list of these verses. Now, these are two key ones. We have here Psalm 2-7 in 2 Samuel 7, 14. And, I, and one of the things we're going to run into when we read these things in Hebrews is that people will say, wait a second. Where did that come from? Isn't that about Solomon? You like Second Samuel seven fourteen? It sounds like it's about Solomon. If you go back at the Samuel, which we're going to do, but yet, but it wasn't just Christians who made up the idea that that was messianic. The Jews believed that verse was messianic for centuries before there were even such a thing as Christians. Second Samuel seven fourteen. So why quote those verses? Well, remember, Hebrews is written to Jewish people. And if you have a Jewish audience, and your audience already believes 2 Samuel 7.14 is about Messiah. Psalm 2 is about Messiah. Isaiah 49, or not, no, I mean, excuse me, Genesis 49, which, by the way, uh, the, the blessing of Judah is about Messiah. Why not use their own beliefs and say, Yes, what you believe is correct. These verses are about Messiah, and here he is. In other words, use their own verses to bring them to Messiah. It's a fantastic uh, technique, and the New Testament writers did that. And so they're using the verses that were already accepted by the Jews as Messianic, and say, here he is. This is the one who fulfills what you believe is about Messiah. So they would have to answer, for which of the angels did he ever see? It's a, say it's a rhetorical question. They'd have to answer none of them. Well, let's, let's turn to Psalm 2 and verse 7. Right? What, what's that all about? And the quotations, by the way, in Hebrews are taken from the Septuagint, not the Masoretic text. And sometimes the Septuagint is quite different. So we'll end up talking about that issue. That offends some people. But it need not. Why did he quote for the Septuagint? Well, remember this. He has a Jewish audience. You know what the Jews believed about the Septuagint? They believed it was divinely inspired. There is this thing called the Epistle of Erastus, if I'm pronouncing it right, that tells this story that in Alexandria, this was before the time of Christ, I think it's like one... 65 A.D. or B.C. that 72 Jewish scholars or 70, 70 Jewish scholars went privately into their own little study and translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek because Alexandria was a center of Greek uh, thinking and uh, scholarship. And then when they all came out and compared them, they all had the exact same thing. That's what this epistle of Aristeus says. 
which I don't believe is factual. It's probably biblical. But they believed it. <laughs> okay? And so they believed that the Septuagint had been given to them by God by a divine miracle. And so if you quoted the Septuagint to a first century Jew, you'd never get questioned. they believe it. Well, then what? So that's part of why I quote the Septuagint, because they accepted it. That wasn't denying the Masoretic text, which we believe is the inspired one. It's just that they'd accept either one, and Hebrew would become, I mean, the Greek was a, a language that everybody knew to do commerce. And so, you're writing in Greek, you use the Greek Bible, they're not going to argue about it. There was a debate later, though, that is interesting. Uh, later, as church history developed, and the debate between the Christians and Jews got continually more intense, when Justin Martyr wrote to, to Trifo, a Jew, and debated him in 135, after 135 AD, they had a debate about the Septuagint. Because the Jews were starting to reject it because the Christians used it to prove the virgin birth. Okay, the Christians, because the Septuagint, which was a Jewish translation, not a Christian one, in Isaiah calls the young woman a virgin. And so, uh, when they started disputing the virgin birth, the Christians pulled out the, they said, well, here's your Septuagint, look what it says. Virgin will conceive. Well, no, that's not the right Bible. <laughs> so, but, so that's how that developed. That was very, very interesting. So, what I'm going to say to you is these citations are from the Septuagint. And if you are, if you look back, in some cases it's quite different than the Hebrew. And so, uh, some people start that penalty, but I, I'm saying it's inspired because it's in the New Testament. All right? Yeah, I, I got a question. When all the verses in the New Testament that were quoting the Old Testament, like prophecies, yeah. aren't they... Most of them, but not all of them. Most, but not all. Sometimes it's exact, sometimes it's a paraphrase of the Septuagint. But yeah, well, which would make sense. If I'm going to write something to somebody, and I'm going to write in English, what Bible am I going to quote? An English Bible. Right? So they're writing the New Testament in Greek. Why, why not quote the Greek Bible that's already right there? Rather than going back to the Hebrew and making your own translation. That's just what they did. Some people object to that, but I think they've got too many things to worry about. It's not leading anybody astray, okay? Let's read it from our old English Bible here. Psalm 2, verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, Today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as thine inheritance. Verse 8. And the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, and thou shalt shatter them as earthenware. Let's read on. Thou therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. Lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. There you go. <laughs> Who do we have here? Don't we have the uh, Trinitarian issue? We have the Father giving the Son the nations as his inheritance. Wow. 
No wonder they quote this. It's very difficult for the rabbis to look at that and get away from the fact that here is this Messiah. They, they wouldn't believe that it was Messiah. Let's go back earlier in this. Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed. Well, who's the anointed one? Anointed is Messiah. The Hebrew word for anointed is Mashiach. Christos in the Greek. Christ or Messiah. Same idea. Well, there's a fantastic one. So, what the author of Hebrews is saying, well, did he ever say this to an angel? Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee? No. Well, who did he say it about? Jesus. Hallelujah. I've had this song too, by the way. It's amazing how people get some really bad theology if they don't read context. Several times I've heard people uh, use this verse uh, for us. They say, you should ask God to give you the nations because he's promised to do so. They go, yeah, yeah, Psalm 2a. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. Well, then who did he promise that to? Us or to Messiah? Messiah. But they, these people in this dominion theology use this verse to say that the church is going to take over the nations before Christ returns. So they use this verse. Context, right? You read the context, you never get the idea that's about us. Today I've begotten you. Uh, I'm going to, well, somebody, let's see here. Uh, Lake, could you look up Luke 3.22? And I'm going to look for a citation from Lenski because I thought he dealt with the time issue as good as anything I found on it. Again, there's this issue of today. What is this speaking of? The early church had a doctrine called the eternal generation of the Son. And that doctrine said that this today I begotten you was in eternity past before time. And so that would be the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. That's okay. I don't know. The question is, is that what the author of Hebrews has in mind? It's, it's a little hard to know. But let me read Alensky on this matter. Uh, when he talks about that doctrine. The passage quoted from the psalm does not speak of the generatio eterna, that is, eternal generation, not of the inner trinitarian relation of the two persons, although this is involved, not of the uh, today as eternity, but as time. It involves the incarnation, the human nature, and the redemptive work of Christ purged away the sins of the world. The idea is not that we may restrict have begotten thee to the incarnation or to the baptism or to the transfiguration. Even the resurrection must be, include all that preceded as well as the exaltation to the right hand of the majesty. Now I would agree with that. That this is speaking of the entire work of Christ as the Messiah that would include Everything from the virgin birth through his sinless life to his death to his resurrection to his exaltation. Which just seems like a long time, but it's like a moment compared to eternity. You know, like 33 years or however long it was, right? That that 
session of Christ on the face of the earth is what is referred to. That's what Linsky says. Anybody got a better idea? <laughs> okay, we're not going to compete with Linsky. I thought it was I thought it was good, but it's it's debated. Uh, it's debated when it's even a Trinitarian debate. So Jesus only Pentecostals will look at this verse and try to disprove the Trinity, but they're wrong. Okay, they're wrong. Philip three twenty two. So there was a voice from heaven that said, You are my beloved Son. So clearly that was in view there at the Transfiguration. But like Galinsky says, that doesn't mean we restrict it to that event. Because here's another reason why I think that this verse is not referring to the eternal generation of the Son. Because the, two, the link of the two passages of um, Psalm 2-7 and 2 Samuel 7-14. Because in one he says, Today I have begotten you, and the next, I will be a father to him, and he has son to me. Which is clearly talking about Messiah. Not from eternity, but in time. Him being the son in the sense of fulfilling the Messianic role as far as the promise to David. Let's turn with me. Let's all turn to 2 Samuel 7. I think there's some clues in there that this wasn't just about Solomon. Because some people will say, well, you know, you teach hermeneutics and you see that you've got to follow the authorial intent, which we do teach. And so, therefore, how can you say some of these verses apply? Because if you look at the context, he was talking about uh, Solomon. But it says here, I'll start with verse 12, 2 Samuel 7. When your days are completed, you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your descendant after you, will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, you would just have reason to believe that's Solomon, right? He shall build a house for my name. That's obviously Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, that goes beyond Solomon. Okay, Solomon didn't live forever. Verse 14, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, now that can't apply to Christ, can it? Christ did not commit iniquity. Solomon did. But when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Uh, but my loving kindness will not depart from him as I took it away from Saul when I removed him from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Now, we have here what... Uh, we call the near and the far. And there was the already not yet. And it, so it's a double reference prophecy. And I'm going to show you that in the Hebrew, right, I mean, in, in the Bible itself here, it was already understood to be that. A double reference prophecy is prophesying about what will happen with Solomon, and at the same time going beyond Solomon and prophesying about Messiah. So the first part of the verse ultimately applies to Messiah, but the being corrected for iniquities only applies in the sense that he bore ours. Because he had not his own. Look at verse 19 with me in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is uh, clear. This is the best way to learn how these prophecies work is just reading this passage right here. Verse 19. And yet, this was 
Well, look, look, David speaking, let's read 18. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that thou hast brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in thine eyes, O God. For thou hast spoken also of the house of thy servant concerning the distant future. David understood this to be a double reference prophecy. Also, you have spoken to me about my son, and you have also spoken to me about the distant future. So Solomon is just a type of Christ that fulfills the temporal role of building the temple. But great Okay. Yeah, mine says this is the custom of man. And uh, uh, Torah, yeah, it could be, another way of translating that is this is the law for mankind. This is the law for mankind. Torah is the word there. The word for custom is Torah. Interesting. Yeah, I noticed those passages that you read that, like in my Bible, in the New King James Version, they capitalize pronouns if there's deity involved. Yes. Talking about Christ. Yes. Do they have that in in ASB? They do do that, yes. Well, they do in... The NASB does that, too. Oh, that's good. Yeah, just to help you. It's an interpretive thing that they're doing but they're pretty good at picking out the right ones. So I like that. Just remember it is interpretive. There's no uh, capitalization in the original. So uh, that's just an idea. But isn't that amazing? Now, this, this passage is a good one to know if people ask about this. And somebody says, well, how can, you, how can these writers of the New Testament apply these things to Christ? Aren't they reading something into the Bible? But you go back here and you say, no, he's not reading anything yet. David himself said he was talking about the distant future. And so the distant future would be the Messiah. So he's the son of God. And the son of David. <laughs> son of David is the Messiah. The promise. Alright, so there is our citation from uh, 2 Samuel 7.14. Uh, son here is used in Hebrews 1.2 for the pre-existent son. Look at back in verse 2. In these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, who will be appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Well, through whom he made the world. If the Son made the world, there's pre-existence, right? He was, he, he, this before the incarnation, he was the creator. So Hebrews 1 2 talks about the pre-existence Son, one who makes the world. But here, speaking about the one who comes into the scene of history, to take up the throne of David. So it's both of Alright? <laughs> I studied this, by the way. Uh, I became a Christian in July of 1971. I went to Bible college that September, having felt called to the ministry. And when I got to Bible college, I also got unengaged. Diane and I were engaged and we and we couldn't figure out whether God wanted us to be engaged or not because we've been engaged for a year as non-saved. And, and, you know, my thinking wasn't all that clear. I was just trying to figure out what, what do you do? How do you know? How does a Christian decide whom to marry? All right? 
And I thought, well, the decision I made about whom to marry was made when I was a pagan, so I can't trust it. And so we broke off our engagement. And I, and I also wanted to figure out how to be a Christian young man without thinking about girls. I don't know if I figured that out or not. <laughs> but I did my best. And, <laughs> and I did my best, you know, 20, 21 years old. And I spent that year when I had no girlfriend studying and, and trying to get grounded in the Scripture. And one of the things I embarked on that year was a study of the book of Hebrews. I had a book about this thick by Arthur Pate on Hebrews, and I read that whole thing and took notes of it, on it and, and studied through this. And I learned a lot, but I, I was probably in the dark about 90% of the stuff we're talking about. You know, it was over my head. But the reason I'm saying this to you is that some would say, why go into this detail of a Bible study in a church? Not like what we're doing here. And some people are very adamant that that's the wrong thing to do. And I was talking with this Brian Flynn last night, or two nights ago, this interesting guy who's going to be speaking here. God saved him out of the New Age about seven years ago. He puts out seminars on the New Age now. And a really interesting guy. And I had supper with him. But we were talking about this. Because I've been reading this book called The Purpose Driven Life by uh, this Rick Warren. And I, don't, I don't really don't like it. It's, it's so watered down and mealy mouth. But um, people of his ilk are basically saying, "You can't do this. You can't sit and talk about whether the sun was the sun from all eternity or where they became the sun of the incarnation and all that stuff." It's way over everybody's head. This is what I said to Brian Flynn when we were discussing that. Think about this: Who does God give the Bible to? We didn't make this up. It's in the Bible. These things are coming right directly out of the text. This isn't just theological speculation. It comes up because it's in the text. And if first century Jews, with no electric lights, no computers, no... Uh, what's that? They didn't have a concordance. They didn't have 2,000 years of scholars having written notes on these things. And, yeah, they're probably better off, right? Well, anyhow, but if, if, if the book of Romans was handed over to people that Paul had not even seen yet, and they were expected to read it and understand it, and in there it talks about propitiation, appeasing the wrath of God, the mercy seat, the blood atonement, that God might be just and justifier, and uh, all the glories that are in the book of Romans. And these ideas were handed over to first century Jews and Gentiles, they didn't have the educational system that we have, supposedly. I don't know if ours is that great. How can somebody come along now and say, well, this is too much. You can't expect people to learn these things. What a slap in the face to the, to the Holy Spirit who inspired the Bible. It's too much for us to learn what God gave us? Yeah. You, you mentioned Rick Warren's book, and then there's uh, thousands of churches uh, across the country now that have Bible studies using that book as a test. And I think the difference between that type of Bible study and the intricate verse-by-verse Bible study we're doing here is in a Bible study such as Rick Warren's, you're, you're focused on what you can get from God. And when you're here doing this, your attention is strictly on Him. And, and what He has said. Loves 
his children to do that. So when people say, uh, no, that's a waste of time to do a verse-by-verse Bible study like that, well, if you were in the father's position, say a father to his children, you, you would be honored in the fact that those children were so deeply involved in the work that you put forth. And we want to know what God has said. Yeah, what's wrong with that? I don't know. I'd rather see the New Testament refuting all the nitpicking in the minutia that you were scholars to pick them off the law and somehow turn to God as being wrong by doing the law. Well, yeah, the, the oral traditions have become like an onion skin around the law with layers and layers and layers. And the New Testament is pretty direct. But what I'm talking about here is for, for this uh, book of Hebrews, there's nothing wrong with a brand new Christian studying it. I did. I understand it better now than I did then. Hopefully when I'm 80, by God's grace, should I live that long? Is it hard to get to 80 of us? Or does it happen quickly? <laughs> quickly. Anyhow, see. Uh, should, should by God's grace I become 80 I hope to understand it better then than I do now and I'm sure when we get to eternity we'll understand it better these things better when we see them face to face but why would we think that you shouldn't give a Bible to a new Christian and expect to read and get something out of it it's just the most it's, it's, yeah, it's for everybody okay so we are exploring what God has said and he says, I will be a father to him, and he is son to me. And so here we have Second uh, Samuel chapter 14, acknowledged by the rabbis as being messianic. And so the early Christians said, here he is. Let us introduce you to this one that you already believe is Messiah. You just haven't met him. <laughs> so this is very evangelistic. And it should still be so. Learning Hebrews will help us evangelize our Jewish friends. Uh, Somebody, uh, Stephan, Acts 13.33, please. And God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's an early Christian preaching. Jesus was in the temple at 12, discussing Yes, discussing the scriptures with the rabbis when he was 12 years old. And uh, the Jewish people had a very high regard for education, which they still do to this day, by the way. And uh, that's a, something God gave them was education. And uh, the Jewish men that went to synagogue were expected to learn Torah. And they were very well educated. That was, that Acts 13 is a very interesting because it shows how the gospel was preached this was Paul preaching to Israel, to Jewish people, and he quotes this verse. Did you know that every sermon in the book of Acts was about the resurrection? Every single one, 100%, without exception. If you don't preach on the resurrection, you didn't preach the gospel. You know that? Why? Because when you tell people Jesus died, you haven't distinguished him from Buddha or Muhammad or anybody else, because they all died too. But if you don't tell, but if you tell people that God raised him from the dead, now you got something unique. Say something about the teaching as well. Going to the Bible 
think that Second uh, Peter says something very interesting in 3.17. He goes, You therefore, beloved, knowing this before, and be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by error, by the error of unprincipled men. How do we do that? He goes, uh, regard the papers of just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom of giving to him, wrote to him, and also in his letters, speaking of in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which he untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. Yeah. So because you know, we're to be taught in what they actually do mean, so that we don't get carried away by the error of people that are, yeah. are misplaying like in this book, so it's important that we're taught. Yep. Amen. Uh, I think that, frankly, I think all true regenerate Christians are born again with a hunger for the Word of God that He puts in their hearts. Yeah. And you almost have to teach them not to have that. And so, uh, those modern experts who think that the Word of God is a hindrance to church growth, they have to do all kinds of things to try to throw water on the fire of the passion that born-again Christians have for the Word of God. And why do that? Why do that? The Word of God is not uh, going to harm Christians. <laughs> it may offend the unregenerate, but it will only cause the regenerate to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And so... May God continue to fan the flames of our passion for Him and for His Word. Amen. God bless you.